Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today we're going to be exploring maybe the single biggest reason that people end up not improving their circumstances and not growing and changing in the ways that they care about the most. The belief that they are stuck, that there's nothing that they can do, that they can't exert much influence over their environments, and that these circumstances will just keep on going and going and going. Now, the counter to this is something that's called self-efficacy, and that's the belief that we have in ourselves that we can be an agent of change, that we really can change those environments. And maybe even most importantly, we can change ourselves. We can exert some control over our motivation and our behavior. Now, improving self-efficacy is maybe the best thing a person can do to end up creating more of a life that they they want to live. And today we're going to be exploring how we can do just that. And to help us do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist. He's a best-selling author. He's my dad. And for the first time in a very long time, he's actually in the same room with me as we're recording one of these. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good. And I'm really happy to be in your space. And compared to your bedroom as a kid, it's so orderly. <laughs> Much more aesthetic, much more well put together. Still has a lot of books. clean, you know. clean, clean. Well, that was that's novel. That would have been novel when I was thirteen years old or so. Yeah, that's been a big transition over time. Maybe a way that I've grown and changed in a, in a positive true. fashion. That's true. Yeah, that's good. So I'm really happy to be here, and it's a topic that's very close to my heart. Yeah, and really central to my own kind of journey as a person. Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to start by actually going back a little bit. Why is it that we are so prone to mm. feeling stuck? This feeling of like there's nothing that we can do to change our lives. We've maybe internalized experiences where that have made it really easy for us to look around and say, mm -hmm. hey, my influence here is pretty limited. Yeah. And over enough time, people just get to a point where they sort of give up. Yeah. Like, why are we yeah. so prone to that experience? Well, like the important why questions, there are, there are layers of answers. Mm -hmm. First, to acknowledge, sometimes people really are stuck. Yeah, They've got a chronic health condition, or they have a duty to someone they love, an aging parent, a child with special needs, and that just keeps them in a certain set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're structurally mistreated in the society in which they live. Those, those are real facts. So we do what we can about those, and still often we're stuck with a certain set of causes and conditions. Then there's how do we learn over our lifespan, either to accumulate learned helplessness or technically what can be described as externalized locus of control, mm. that's another kind of related term. Or on the other hand, how can we acquire a sense as Seligman and others have talked about, learned optimism, learned self-efficacy, learned internalized locus of control in which we really, really do what we have influence over and we find ways inside our own minds to come to peace with what we can. So mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll be talking about how to do that. It is really interesting how rapidly mm -hmm. mammals like dogs, uh, upon whom some of the earliest research was done in ways that today's ethical standards would not allow, why is it that dogs and humans are so vulnerable to acquiring yeah. a sense of entrapment, mm -hmm. futility, and defeat? And one or two or three episodes like that versus the many, many more times, mm -hmm. five times as many, 10 times as many episodes of efficacy are required to gradually unlearn that helplessness. Mm -hmm. Many people mm -hmm. wonder, and there's some speculation that's plausible that this actually is useful in evolution. If you are struggling with something and you're unsuccessful at it, Maybe the most conservative and safest thing is to hunker down, mm -hmm. defeated, maybe depressed, but you're not exposing yourself to risks, including from predators mm -hmm. out there in the wild. So anyway, that's kind of a way to understand it. Yeah. It just means that we really need to compensate yeah. for that biological vulnerability mm -hmm. with lots and lots of counter experiences mm -hmm. of efficacy and agency and lots and lots of taking in the good mm -hmm. internalization when we have those experiences. Yeah, to me, two things just immediately stand out. And the first is something that I, I did a short video on for my YouTube, if people want to go and check it out. It's called our, our homeostatic base or the principle uh, of homeostasis. 
we don't want to change. Yeah, family um, systems theory. Family systems theory. Families, yeah. families don't want to change. Yeah, punish our, the one who tries to change. Yeah, yeah. Our, our baseline is very stable and it's yeah. very static by and large. And so it takes a lot of effort to exert change in those kinds of stable situations, right? Yeah. We don't like to move too far from what we know. And there are you know, plenty of evolutionary yeah. plausible explanations for this. You kind of pointed to some of them. Yeah. And then the second thing that really stands out to me is just the self-fulfilling prophecy of this mm -hmm. whole thing, right? Yeah. Where the only thing that guarantees failure in the future is not trying. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that guarantees it. And so it's so interesting to me that we will essentially concede that we will concede losing mm. because trying and failing is more painful than just giving up and losing automatically. Oh yeah. And isn't that like like that's there's something about that that just stands out to me as like if you actually think about it that way, it's like, whoa, it just makes you shake your head a little bit, right? It's not rational, but yeah. welcome to humanity. Yeah, totally. And there that's kind of interesting because I, I think about people who are always holding back for the last battle. Mm, mm -hmm. I think about that. And if you don't fully commit yourself to something, you are not putting all your self-esteem chips on the table, mm -hmm. subject to the turn of the wheel. Mm -hmm. So you can always think to yourself, well, you know, if I'd really tried, or well, if I'd ever sent that short story in or that poem mm -hmm. in or mm -hmm. asked that other person out on a date or to marry me, yeah, it might've turned out okay. Yeah. So you're kind of preserving a certain amount of self-worth or the possibility Mm -hmm. That well, next year, next year, mm -hmm. I'll do it next time. I think that's one reason. I think another reason has to do with the negativity bias again and loss aversion. I see one of the books on your shelf is from Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah, one of my favorites. Nobel Prize winner in economics as a psychologist for his work on loss aversion. Yeah. Yep. And so very often people will overvalue the negative consequences. And so they'll they'll stop trying they'll give up the positive that they plausibly could gain to avoid the risk, even though it's a small risk, of a negative event mm -hmm. related to the effort to gain the positive thing. So mm. to me, that's another thing there mm -hmm. in terms of the negativity bias. And the reason I started thinking about it, it was picking up on what you said earlier mm -hmm. about people in environments in which they have a lot of objective control over their situation. Mm -hmm. They tend to be fairly open-minded and growth-oriented and promotion-oriented rather than prevention-oriented, mm -hmm. these two major kind of dichotomies. On the other hand, people who have much less control over their situations, and if things go badly, they could be devastating, tend to be much more conservative, mm. which is one of the explanations for why around the world, typically, people who live in rural areas or countries that are particularly rural tend to be much more conservative than people who live in cities, who are also exposed to more points of view. But in these rural areas, there's so much out of your control. Mm. You know, my dad, your grandfather, grew up on a ranch in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And during the Great Depression, it was drought for years, locusts, goodness knows what, the price of beef plummeted, totally outside their control. What yeah. could they do? Of course, you would be very, very cautious and conservative mm -hmm. to try to you know minimize a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. So something you mentioned earlier is learned helplessness. Yeah. If uh, people listen to a podcast like ours, they've probably heard that phrase before. Yeah. But I think it'd be helpful here because it's one of the big things we're going to be talking about today to just dive into it a little bit more deeply, explain what that phrase means and some oh, yeah. of the context around it. In a lot of ways, the most useful way to talk about it that really brings it home is to describe the original research. I'm going to be talking about some painful consequences for dogs, so just kind of know that. These were not lethal, but they were unpleasant. The research, and I'm summarizing probably a whole series of studies, occurred in two phases. Phase one was the training phase, mm -hmm. in which motley crew of dogs <laughs> were randomly assigned, as it were, to the A group and the B group, mm -hmm. and they were paired up. So you had the A1-B1 dog, the A2-B2 dog, Paired. Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. And so then the dogs were brought into identical pens, small rooms that had a metal floor and a light, a buzzer, and a big button right around shoulder level for the dog. And the training protocol was essentially for the light to go start flashing, the buzzers to start going, and then five or 10 seconds later, the floor would be mildly but painfully electrified in both pens. 
the exact same amount of shock in the floor. Eventually, one of them would hit the button and it would shut off the electricity in both pins. Mm -hmm. So the dogs got exactly the same amount of painful stimuli. The only difference was the button did not work in the B dog's pen. So then after going through several cycles of this and being brought into the situation, the A dog gradually, typically quickly learned, oh, when the buzzer goes off, the light starts flashing, hit the button. And that will prevent shock to your pen. It'll also prevent shock to the B dog pen. But again, the B dog had no control over its fate. And we all can liken this to our own situations in life, right? Kind of poignantly and painfully. Then in the testing phase, phase two, the dogs were brought into a pen, a different kind of pen, that was sort of like a long rectangle mm -hmm. that had two sides with a low fence in the middle. And the question was, how much effort would the dogs make to escape their painful situation? Mm -hmm. So they'd bring them in at different times, but essentially the same matched pairs, the A1 dog, the B1 dog, okay? They'd bring him into this one side of the pen, the light would start flashing, the bell would start ringing, and then the floor would be electrified 10 seconds later, something like that. And then the first time it would happen is that the A dogs would thrash around and go, whoa, get me out of here, and they would jump over the barrier to the other side where there was no electricity. The B group dogs would just sit there. They wouldn't make an effort. So this puzzled the experimenters immensely. They thought mm -hmm. that the B-group dogs might be a little inhibited, but they'd learn. So what did they do? They lowered the barrier. No barrier, just a line there. B-dogs wouldn't walk across the line. The experimenters would come in wearing rubber boots and gloves and drag the B-group dogs across the line, away from the electrified half to the other half that was safe. And it would take dozens, even hundreds of trials to finally retrain the B group dogs, that they could do something about their fate. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, to finish, the experimenters observed that the B group dogs had kind of the canine equivalent of human depression. They were mopey. They lost their appetite. They weren't interested in sex. They just looked dispirited and kind of blue. Dogs, uh, like many mammals, have a lot of the fundamental hardware neurologically for emotion, basic emotions, certainly, that humans have. And this became part of the basis for a broader theory of the ways in which learned helplessness can be a major factor of depression. Mm -hmm. So that's the summary here. And loving dogs, you know, my heart is touched by what had to happen, by not had to happen, what did happen. And yet the takeaways are really quite clear. It was amazing how quickly you could train the B group dogs into helplessness, even though they experienced the exact same amount of painful stimuli. The only difference was that they were helpless. And then how astonishingly long it took to help them unlearn that helplessness. So to summarize then this and kind of say it back to you, when somebody has repeated experiences that they can't do something about their circumstances, they internalize that as learning. And therefore, really, really importantly, they stop trying to change their circumstances. Yes. Or the even dog stops trying them. to push the button, doesn't try to jump over yeah. the, the railing that's yeah. keeping them away from the thing. They just, yeah. they, they throw their hands up, metaphorically in this yeah. case, and yeah. accept their fate. Is defeat. that more or less right? Yes, defeat. Yeah. And okay. to give a different analogy, if a story, so this goes back to my dissertation. Mm -hmm. And I was watching in 20 mother-toddler pairs, dyads, well, 15-month-old kids, toddlers, and part of the protocol was that the toddler would sit in a high chair mm -hmm. and with his or her mother would make a batch of ginger snap cookies. So this was about, did the mother offer alternatives to mm. problematic child wants? Okay. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. Yeah. Rather than just ignoring the child with what he or she wanted or punishing or suppressing their wants. All right. And I will never forget this particularly animated boy sitting in his high chair with a mom who you could tell she was really well-intended, really well-intended, and she was oblivious to her mm -hmm. child's cues and what he wanted. And there was a sequence that I have on videotape in which he watched her with a nice big wooden spoon mm -hmm. 
a very desirable object mm. if you're 15 month mm-hmm. old. Stirring the batter for the ginger snaps, and he started gesturing toward it. Ah, his gaze goes right to the spoon. He's gesturing. Ah, she ignored him. He got a little louder and louder. Ah, ah, she ignored him. She was task oriented. She really wanted to make a good batch of ginger snaps. Okay, finally, he gets louder and louder, and she looks at him while he's holding the spoon and goes, Oh, you want the spoon? And he kind of smiles. And then she turns away and keeps stirring the batter Mm, with the spoon. mm. And he goes into a complete slump. Mm. Despair. Defeat. It's the worst thing. You'd rather see someone who's angry, Mm -hmm. even enraged, than just Mm. disorganized. Mm -hmm. The self-structure kind of gets blown apart. You see, this is one of the central hallmarks of trauma. You're just blown apart. Despair. And yeah, mm-hmm. that's what happens and can happen really easily when we're defeated, entrapment and defeat. Yeah, and what stands out to me in that story is that this is not a horrific experience for a toddler. Correct. If we think about it in terms of like minus 10 to plus 10 experiences, yes. this is a minus two experience, a minus three experience. You know, you really desired a thing and you didn't get the good thing. Yep. And yet it provoked that kind of a response from the child. Likely, yeah. because it was the thousandth, seventh, thousandth, event. hundredth, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. And one of the takeaways, especially for people listening and thinking about their own upbringing and events in life, repeated patterns of events that can occur on a time scale of a dozen seconds mm. can really add up over time, mm. particularly based on the temperament of the person. Mm-hmm. Some people are more vulnerable to the acquisition of learned helplessness, partly because they're more invaded in the core of their being by what's happening. You know, maybe they're particularly sensitive. They're in the sort of highly sensitive person range, or in this child's case, probably toward the spirited end of Mm -hmm. the normal spectrum. Mm -hmm. So really affected by things. And also there's this dynamic in which if you think of mood, the higher you go, the farther you can fall. In other words, this kid could get elevated in Mm -hmm. mood the combination of how positive and how intense. So high positivity, high intensity. He was elevated and then boom, she deflated his bubble. She Mm -hmm. just popped his bubble Mm -hmm. again. So these things add up and we can really appreciate this was a well-intended parent, no abuse whatsoever, nothing to call CPS about. And yet gradual accumulation of a lot of events like that can lead to a certain Eh, what can you do? Yeah. And now, of course, you know, we can start to apply this to ourselves and we can start looking through our own history and asking ourselves, when did I have these kinds of experiences? What were the circumstances in which I had these kinds of experiences? And sometimes it's pretty straightforward, even easy to identify where we've picked up a little bit of learned helplessness over time. Uh, People are often very good at kind of telling their story in a sort of yeah. general way to a therapist in a clinical setting, something like that. And the the challenges for people normally come in when it's time to do something about them. Yeah. But then there are also some circumstances where it can be really difficult to see the ways in which we've acquired helplessness. Sure. Because it, it seems so true. Yeah, exactly. Because it just seems obvious yeah. that fill in the blank. Yeah. If I ask for something, mm-hmm. you'll hurt me. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. It's just It's the assumption. This is the way that people are with each other. Um, a, a really simplistic example might be something like, I'm just bad at math. Yeah. Because you've had a million experiences yeah. growing up of an incompetent teacher or an angry parent or whatever yeah. else, you know? And like, sure, there's a, there's a range of talent when it comes to different things. And there's a range of talent when it comes to math or something sure. like that. But the only thing that guarantees that you're going to keep on being bad at math is that you didn't try to improve. Yeah. So again, it becomes this very self-perpetuating thing. The assumption is that I can't do the thing and so I don't do the thing. So what happens? Well, I can't do the thing. And it just keeps on going that way. Yeah. Another thing related to that is how are you treated for trying? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. This is a huge part of it. Yeah, yeah. totally. How are you treated when you yeah. try and don't succeed? Mm-hmm. And or how are you treated when you're feeling kind of big for your britches? Sure. Yeah. yeah. You got to sit up straight and you got a little moxie going. And then you're suddenly people are saying, you know, 
girls don't act like that. Don't, mm. don't do that. Or something happens, maybe. You get, you're a little annoying because you are a little loud or something sure. or other. And you just kind of go, ooh, I better really yeah. start buttoning it in. Yeah. And just here, if people are watching or listening, it's so interesting to look at the physicality of this, the embodiment mm. of this. Here's where your partner mm. would definitely add value. Yeah. Elizabeth, about totally. this. Yeah. From all kinds of places, theater training and somatic therapy. But think about shame. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've really learned recently from Paul Gilbert, mm -hmm. profound professor of compassion-focused therapy and other things, he points out the underlying biology of shame in primates is a submission behavior. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in, you know, alpha-beta dominance interactions, the beta will curl under, you know, maybe it's the canine equivalent or the Simian equivalent of a dog, you know, rolling over and exposing its belly mm -hmm. as a submission behavior. So there's this, it's quite physical. It's this curling mm -hmm. over. Mm, sure. Right? Yeah. You know, and that basically means I, I need to disappear. Mm -hmm. I'm not really here. I'm going to get off the radar, which is the opposite of efficacy. And think about what it's like to sit up a little straighter. Mm -hmm. Or if you're with people who are kind of being a little bossy, you know. What's it like to sit up a little straighter, to get a little forward, you know, mm -hmm. to uh, activate the reticular activating system, you know, in the brainstem, which is an alerting behavior. As, you know, as we came out of the forest into the savanna plains over like a five, 10 million year process back in evolution, you know, we move from, you know, where we're, how many vertebrates walk upright? Mm -hmm. One. Yeah. Basically, a bear can kind of sort of do it, mm -hmm. but not for very long, right? It's not very common, and it may be a dog or a, a monkey, but not very common. Anyway, as we did that, you know, we rose up. Mm -hmm. We rose up, and people can just feel what happens when you rise up. You get more alert, you feel more present, you feel more potent. You feel more yeah. like a hammer and yeah. less like a nail. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging, directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is Super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. So you're, you're already pointing to something that I wanted to talk about a little bit later, but we can kind of just get into it now, which is how do you develop more self-efficacy. And we yeah. need to kind of understand the concept a little yeah. bit better to get there. But one of the really important things about self-efficacy that I found when I was diving into the research is that all of these different things that we don't necessarily think of as being interrelated mm -hmm. are profoundly connected to one another. Right. Our emotional system, 
our physical system and our psychology are all interconnected. So what helps somebody experience more self-efficacy? Well, generally good emotions tend to help them. Are you in a a situation that's supportive emotionally or not? Like that's a big question. If you're being supported emotionally by others, it's a lot easier to feel like you can do something about your circumstances. What helps improve self-efficacy? Having your body feel good. You know, like being basically physically healthy. All of the little somatic indicators that you were applying there, Dad. Mm. So it's really interesting how these different aspects can all work together to help us give ourselves a greater sense of like control and influence over our circumstances. You're pointing to vitality, mm-hmm. to be sure. And one of the things that can lead to less self-efficacy is chronic illness. Sure. Yeah. And pain, inescapable chronic pain. For example, that's where the work of people like Vidyamala mm-hmm. Birch and John Kabat-Zinn around mindfulness-based stress reduction has been really important in terms of how we cope with chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's interesting is to think about the ways in which, as people get older, it can actually be adaptive for them to give up about certain things and shrink the circle of their activities because that's a circle in which they can conserve their resources for the long marathon of being elderly. And so one thing to think about is the ways in which it can be adaptive to recognize that you don't have efficacy there. Uh, One of the things for me, to be honest, is, well, I'm always honest with you, but to kind of really, to be self-disclosing, there you go. I'll tell you, to a fault, I'm definitely somebody who you probably know well, I see the goal, I see the path, I walk the path. Mm-hmm. There's like very little friction about it to a fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I can be determined to a fault. And lately, I've been looking at that and having this little voice in, inside my mind. You know, like a dog will chase a ball. Mm-hmm. It's the nature of the dog to chase the ball. Yeah. And yet, the dog's going to bump into people, expose itself to, you know, getting run over by a truck. And inside my mind is a little thing like, Ricky, don't chase the ball mm-hmm. <laughs> to a fault. Yeah. And related yeah. to that has been the benefits of recognizing where I don't have efficacy. And where mm-hmm. I don't have efficacy, I don't have responsibility. And where I don't have responsibility, I don't have blame. So there's a balance here. On yeah. the one hand, we're encouraging people, obviously. I think it's the classic thing. Claim the power you do have mm-hmm. and come to wisdom and peace about where you don't. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So the other big concept that I wanted to talk about today that I think could help people gain that sense of control and influence over themselves and their lives is Growth Mindset. The book Mindset by Carol Dweck is sitting behind you right, over there. I've right. just got it right on the counter. Um, it's a great book. Would, re- would recommend it, yes, if you're watching on YouTube. My dad's pointed to it right now. And so what's really cool about, again, this territory is how these different things can work together in really yeah. interesting yeah. ways. Like yeah. self-efficacy is our belief and our ability to influence environments, make mm-hmm. a difference, create change. Yeah. Growth mindset is belief in our ability to change ourselves, basically. Uh, the ability to learn things in particular that are meaningful to us. So it's when the two start to work together that all of the cool stuff can happen for people. So could you take just a quick moment if somebody somehow is listening to this podcast episode without knowing this and explain to people what a growth mindset is? Ah, Quick summary, leaving out many details, developed a line of research, beautiful, profound, Professor Carol Dweck, Stanford, uh, originally centered in schools with obviously lots of applications in non-academic environments, just observing basically the distinction to sort of generalize and, and cluster many individual differences and combinations mm-hmm. of this. Kids who had an outcome orientation, mm-hmm. and so they they were very oriented around getting the high grade, let's say, on a test, compared to kids who had more of a process orientation, a growth mindset in which what was valuable f- for them was not so much the result, but how much they grew, how much they learned along the way. And a lot of findings that over the long haul, people with that growth mindset tend to feel better and perform better. Mm-hmm. And then you can you can broaden that out elsewhere. Yeah, I do think it's really interesting to apply the notion of a growth mindset to our social-emotional learning, not just academic learning, and to apply that mindset to the acquisition of a growth toolkit, Mm. which as you know, has been right at the heart of my own professional work in terms of positive neuroplasticity, taking in the good and helping 
states, including the state of a growth mindset, become traits, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like trait growth mindset. Yeah. And knowing how, if you are interested in growing, to help your experiences leave lasting traces behind mm-hmm. in your nervous system so you really do acquire more and more of the durable good you want to grow inside. Yeah, so maybe a way to, to think about this is do you think of things as being based in nature or do you think of things as being based in nurture? Right. Do you emphasize talent or do you emphasize effort? Mm-hmm. Is one of those major distinctions yep. that you were just mm-hmm. emphasizing. And if I could, and yeah. under the heading of so-called nurture is mm-hmm. really a combination, which people tend to glide right by, mm. of external influences and yeah. internal yeah, yeah, totally. influences. Totally, great point, great point. And there's been a lot of really interesting research on this. And something that I've been playing around with a lot myself is just like increasingly believing that the ways in which we emphasize talent socially are really problematic. The culture in general just has a real fascination with genius. Like we love talking about geniuses and prodigies and all of these things. We just emphasize that over and over and over again. What matters is that you're good at something and you're good at it quickly. Yeah. And there's been all kinds of research performed predominantly on children looking at different kinds of reinforcement strategies and what are kids praised for? Mm. Are they praised for knowing quickly? Are they praised for having a lot of ability? Wow, Tammy, you're just so good at that thing. Or are they praised for their efforts and pursuit at becoming better at it over time? That's so interesting. You know, as I've mentioned to you off camera, lately I've just been reflecting on my life. It's kind Mm -hmm. of typical at this developmental stage, a certain amount of review and Looking back, while also really looking at mistakes, regret, and remorse, and looking back, I've really just taken a view that much of the fair standards to judge, at least myself by, and I think many people, when you reflect on your life, are, did you try hard? Mm -hmm. Did you bring a good heart? And did you learn along the way? Mm. None of which have to do with talent. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I That's just really think it's so old-fashioned. Totally. Yeah, you know, yeah. Did you try, mm-hmm. right? Did you bring a work ethic to yeah. it? I think, uh, you know, your dad, pardon me, your dad, I'm your dad. My dad, <laughs> my mom, they both had a work ethic. Yeah. They tried, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't always succeed, but they tried. And do you bring a good heart? Are you basically good-hearted? And do you learn? Do you have a growth curve? Do you have a learning curve along the way? Totally. Yeah. Totally. And so... What you see again in these studies is just that if kids are essentially praised for the efforts that they make, yeah. grades improve over time. If they're praised for their talents, they yeah. stay flat. Yeah. Yeah. So That's it's right. it's really, it is a single variable that predicts so much in our lives. Why do you think we're so bad at learning this? Because it's under our nose. There are all these sayings, good process drives good product. And yet people get very fixated around outcome. And I've seen pe- my mm-hmm. clients, you know, all kinds of clients. Yeah, totally. They feel really bad about themselves. And I'm kind of burrowing into why, you know, have you done something evil? Is there something you really need to come to terms with? Uh, no, actually. And you hear them tell their story. Mm-hmm. They've lived virtuously. They've tried hard. They've brought a good heart. They've learned along the way. They've actually accomplished a number of things. But they don't feel very good about themselves in mm-hmm. part because the box score is the metric of their self-worth. Yeah. And anything less than a you know, an A plus Mm -hmm. every time just feels like, oh, complete failure. Mm -hmm. Rather than acknowledging all the ways in which they try hard every day. They're swimming upstream with tough situations. They're dragging some others along the road with them. You know, they're trying to bring their family home at 20,000 feet in a blizzard, metaphorically, every day. Oof. Yeah. But why? Why do you think, Forrest? Well, I think we're starting to tread on the next episode that we're going to record together, Uh which has to do with intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation Uh and finding a meaning and purpose in life broadly. Yeah. And I wonder if part of what you're pointing to is essentially a a kind of extrinsic motivation. Yeah. It's like we're we're, the box score approach is about what happened externally. It's not about what was happening inside of you internally. And so we we have a broad cultural framework that like your internal motivation matters so much as it allows you to accomplish things in the external world. Yeah. And then from there, it's kind of whatever, you know, that's for you to worry about. Yeah. And I, I just think this is one of the huge knock-on effects of it. I, we're, we're getting better at it. Yeah, I do yeah. think we're getting better about it. As a as a side thing, this is again maybe a whole other episode. This whole like notion of a liberal education system is essentially a hundred year long experiment. 
We've only been doing it for about 100, 150 years. We've never tried to educate the whole populace before in oh, okay. history. In that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I don't exactly. mean like liberal, like liberal versus conservative yeah. or something like that. I just mean like the whole notion that everybody should learn is completely modern. So yes. we're still figuring it out is my and, point. Yeah. And we've applied mm -hmm. an educational system that was designed for the children of aristocrats. Yeah. You know, in certain kind of very controlled, content-heavy settings mm -hmm. with a lot of punishment, and we have essentially ported that entire approach and applied it to the to everybody, everyone, uh, yeah, without much innovation. Actually, it's it, it is really interesting. And so, I just wonder about yeah. that in terms of things like developing a growth mindset over time. Yeah. Like, would we be much more likely to uh. develop a growth mindset if we were put into more circumstances that worked for more different kinds of brains? Exactly, and not just this kind of one rigid. Yeah version of a thing that maybe works for somebody like me. Like I did yeah. okay in school, Ditto. Yeah. but I'm pretty darn neurotypical dude. You know, yeah. I'm pretty task same. oriented. Yeah. I, I can apply those kinds of like hardcore top down. You can listen and write function. at the same time. Yeah, I can listen and write at Just the same time. Just a bizarre time. skill that nobody had yeah, until 5,000 years ago because so, there was no writing. So there you go. So the, the point is that all of this is extremely new. Yeah, yeah. And it is not suited for most people. And yeah. so most people because of this yeah. experience defeat, oh, experience man. helplessness, all the time in a school setting. And yep. so that just becomes internalized oh, yeah. over the course of a long life, oh, you know? Really. So like, why would you start to believe that you could learn things if all of your experiences with learning were essentially shitty oh, for yeah. the first 20 years of your life? Oh yeah. You know, it's really funny. So, we should do a whole, a whole thing on uh, <laughs> uh, counterintuitive applications of psychoanalysis. Oh, I, I like this. Well, what good, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's this whole thing is, you know, psychoanalysis, right? So the, the patient, mm -hmm. that's the word typically, transfers to the analyst the patient's patterns yeah. uh, mm -hmm. patterns of relationships from their childhood transference cool. yeah. and i think about the ways in which there's massive transference from experiences in schools yeah totally. and then of course massive transference from experiences with groups of peers while growing up mm -hmm. right and that's really something for people to be aware of and man it you know it leads me for us we should have like a soundtrack, you know, like <laughs> for, for like, when you're doing something that, like big and spacious. Yeah, or for when you're, you're doing gonna the, come to me. The Mr. Long Rogers hair, thing, he's like, got a deep voice. He's on Sirius XM. Everybody knows him. Not me. It's coming. Are you, are you talking about Howard? Stern? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Wow. I'm just saying we should have some like music, some sure, sound sure. effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. For what? Okay. For what? For when Dad, when Rick busts out a list. One, acknowledge. Really, what you don't have control over. Sure. Yep. And doing that, and it's going to be a long list, Yeah. sets you up to acknowledge where you actually do have influence. Mm -hmm. And it will bring a lot of inner peace because mm -hmm. you realize, man, there's so much I don't have responsibility for, but I don't have control over, thus no responsibility, thus no blame. Great. Second, tell the truth about your history. Mm. And the ways in which, to whatever extent, efficacy, agency, internal locus of control, on the one hand, were innate, nurtured, rewarded, mm -hmm. supported, enabled. And on the other hand, uh, there were forces that led you to experiences of entrapment, defeat, helplessness, and externalized locus of control. The forces are outside you. Tell the truth about that. Third, mobilize a lot of love for the parts of you that were wounded mm. and bruised and imprisoned, oppressed inside your mind mm. through all that. And it really kind of sounds funny, but it, it means bringing a lovingness to the parts of you that were squashed. And often it's the most beautiful parts of us, like that little boy who just wanted <laughs> to wave the spoon. So, you know, love those parts, okay? Yeah, there's a huge self-compassion aspect to this whole yeah, thing. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, that sweet part that just wants to get big and be loud and make stuff happen and get squelched. Mm -hmm. Fourth, look for opportunities today in simple, undeniable ways to experience agency or efficacy. I was thinking about it. As I reached for the glass, I'm right-handed, so I was like, Oh, don't spill, Rick, on camera. That'd be kind of gross. <laughs> don't ruin the shirt. You know, but so when you are exercising effective control, yeah. you are influencing things, 
know what it feels like yeah and enjoy it and really really take it in mm. and then my fifth and last suggestion in my list there should be a sound effect for the last one <laughs> on my list maybe <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So we'll, we'll do a little. We'll do a little post post production <laughs> okay, magic in here. Maybe. <laughs> he said, "Realize, as you and I have talked about a million times, and I've learned a lot from you about this, is to recognize the invisible bars of your cage or the bars of your invisible cage, and take risks of the dreaded experience in which you deliberately take a small risk. You challenge yourself to be more agentic." To more, mm. be more influential, mm-hmm. to be more visible, to take more of a chance, to put it out there, whatever it might be, and then when it goes well, restabilize the mm. bars of your cage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not that it's good to have bars of your cage, but now they're bigger. The space is more expanded mm-hmm. again and again and again and again. And for many people, where they will experience the most consequential forms of agency. Are not in big behaviors like get grabbing a wooden spoon or leaping over a barrier to mm. safety. Mm-hmm. Where they will most experience agency and efficacy is in their relationships. Yeah, and and most people don't experience a lot of yeah. agency and efficacy That's in their right. relationships. And, yeah. and moving into heartfeltness—that's scary. Making vulnerable requests that are scary. Being firm, telling people no, mm. uh, drawing mm-hmm. a boundary. Mm-hmm. Making it clear, for example, that you kind of see another person really clearly, and they're going to do whatever they do, but you're going to not see them clearly anymore, mm. or you're going to not fail to see them clearly anymore. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Anyway, okay, that's my list. You will Number no longer five. be deceived. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I think that there's so much in that that we could. Yeah, unpack and talk about more deeply. What kind of stands out to me is one of the things you said at the very beginning, which was really relates to like how I think about it. That idea of like creating a coherent narrative about yourself. Yeah, because it's really normal for people to have kind of a blend of mm-hmm. like a fixed mindset about some things yeah. and a growth mindset about another yeah. things. Right. Like taking myself as an example, I really believe that I can learn new, cool academic things in order to prep for a podcast conversation yeah. like this one. Really confident in that. I've got a great growth mindset when it comes to that. For a long time, was not so confident in my ability to do some of the interpersonal stuff that you're talking about. Yeah, because I had more negative experiences in mm-hmm. that arena, where yeah. I had more positive experiences in the learn cool academic thing arena. So it was natural that I developed a growth mindset in one place, but a fixed mindset in another. And so it can be really helpful to take an inventory of yourself and ask yourself some basic questions like. Where are the places where I feel like I've got a good growth mindset already? Where are the places where I feel like I don't? What were the experiences that led to the accumulation of that growth mindset or that fixed mindset? Mm -hmm. Where are the environments where I do feel a sense of self-efficacy, where I do feel like I can change them in positive ways? Where are the environments where I can't do that? What are the commonalities in the ones where I can't and the ones where I can? What do they have in common with each other and how are they different? And... How do their differences communicate to me yeah. that I can't do anything about them? Yeah. Where do those beliefs come from to really just simplify all of this? And that's been super useful for me because when you start to unpack all of the pieces of the thing, it's kind of like taking apart a complex machine and you see all the pieces lying out in front of you. And when they're all in front of you, you just get a better sense of how the whole thing works. Whereas if you just see a car as a car, it can be kind of operated by magic, right? It's, ooh, there are elves inside of it. But you take the pieces apart and you're like, oh, this is a mechanical thing. And so that's something that I just really recommend to people if they're trying to unpack this or trying to understand where they're at with these ideas currently and what they can do in the future to improve them. Can you think of an example of something that for you Mm -hmm. felt beyond your capacity to influence? Mm. Sure. And then you decided to try to influence it. You claimed a kind of agency related to it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to use a bad example, but it's a meaningful one. And hopefully we can find something useful in here. Yeah. Uh, what other people thought of me. That's a huge. Yeah. So I say it's a bad example because it's a very complicated one. But essentially for the early part of my life, I basically felt like it sort of didn't matter what I did. Mm. People just had a view of me. 
Yeah. And I didn't really understand why they had that view of me. Mm. I thought that view of me was mostly incorrect. Yeah. And I was kind of like, well, if I'm going to get punished for this view that people have of me, then what's the point in trying to behave better about it? I should just mm. kind of lean into what feels good to me in the moment because I'm going to get kind of punished either way. So I might as well take the rewards that I get from those kinds of behaviors yeah. along with the punishment that I'm going to get. And then I think that in my mid-20s or so, I a little bit before then, but it really started in my mid-20s, was when I started stepping back and going like, hey, what if I could affect this more? What would it be like if I could? What kind of uh, impact would that have on my life? It would have a huge impact. Mm -hmm. And so I just started unpacking it and started going, why do people think these things about yeah. me? Like, what are the behaviors? Like, if we assume that it's based on evidence, just take that as an assumption. And I assume that there's something I can do about it. Yeah. What's the evidence and what will I do about it? Mm -hmm. And just shifting into that stance of those two assumptions, assume that it's based on evidence and assume that there's something that I can do about it. Mm. Totally transformative for me. It took years. Wow. It, it took years and years because a lot of the time we're talking mm. about people who had had a thousand previous interactions with me or 10,000 mm. previous interactions or 100,000 previous interactions. Yeah. It takes a lot of new evidence to change the beliefs associated with those old interactions. Yeah. So it took time and I had to just be okay with it taking years. Mm. But over time, I got a lot better about a lot of the behaviors that other people didn't like, mm. that some of which were very understandable that they didn't <laughs> like. And I developed a much greater sense of control over my social relationships mm. while also critically doing what you were talking about earlier, which is just kind of giving it up for the things that I couldn't control or the things that yeah. I couldn't influence. Yeah. And over time, I was able to find a little bit more peace about that too, though I would say I'm still working on that one. Oh, Does that I, make sense? Yeah, of yeah. course. I'm happy for you as a person and, and sure. your father. That's very touching. My an answer for me, also just reflecting on it, is that I felt as a kid that I was unable to affect people to love me. And one of the quite intimately meaningful moments in my life occurred some years ago when I was actually driving to work and kind of reflecting on purpose in life and a sense of fulfillment of purpose in life. And for me, it just really landed that I was loved. I was loved. And that I had the capacity to uh, affect people in such a way that I would, I would mm -hmm. be lovable and loved. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of an answer for me. Yeah. And, and it, you know, we're in a deep place here, but this is the kind of stuff that we can connect self-efficacy theory to. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a lovely reflection to add and it kind of broadens it out in a really beautiful way. As we come to the end here. Yeah. I want to think about a very specific granular example that somebody who's listening to this right now might be having in their life. And I'm wondering what advice you would give this person. All right. So let's say that we this is a person. music here. You know, yeah, yeah. Okay, effects. great. Yeah, we've got the music in the Clashing back. trumpet. Uh -huh. See, we had very different visions for what this music was going to sound like, Dad. But hey, maybe it, it might involve trumpets. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. We'll see. We'll do a little post-production. So somebody who is in, I think, a very normal situation where let's say that they are in their late 20s, they are living with their parents, they're in a, they have a job, the job is not tremendously fulfilling, and they feel like they've kind of made various efforts to improve things, but they just feel very stuck in that in that bedroom, you know, in that mm. house. And we can, of course, broaden this out to other kinds of circumstances that are kind of like mm. this at various other stages of life. Yeah. But this is just one that I've been through myself and I've certainly seen plenty of my friends go through as well. Yep. And if that person were coming to your office and they were like, doctor, I just feel stuck. Yep. I don't know if your patients call you doctor or Rick or what they Rick. call you. Rick, all right, Rick, I just feel stuck. Where would you start? Oh, well, a lot of layers to that. Yeah. Uh, Probably empathy. What's, starters, yeah, what's it feel like to be yeah, stuck? Totally. What's going on? What's your history? What's really happening here? What are the payoffs in being stuck? Could what? you say more about that? That's really interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, secondary gains or payoffs. What are the benefits? What's good about being stuck? What does it do for you to be stuck? How does it help you avoid certain risks, certain, you know, the risks of certain unpleasant experiences. Mm. Maybe there are other people who see you in a certain way. It preserves, maybe like you said earlier, a certain equilibrium, homeostasis. 
in your family situation. Maybe you feel like you're fulfilling some functions for your parents. Maybe you're kind of helping them stay together or you think you are by being down in the basement, mm, playing music mm -hmm. late at night. Whatever it might be, always look at that part. And then what are the costs? What are the costs? And honestly, what are the costs? And then, okay, could there be a better way? Mm. Could there be a better way to get the rewards that you're getting out of your current situation that you, of course, I understand, don't like, and a better way that also, though, would have less of those costs? Mm. That's kind of a useful frame. Yeah. And then at the point where the person becomes, you know, the joke about how many therapists it takes to change a light bulb, this light bulb wants to change. Key, the pilot light is now starting to ignite. And in that, playing on experiences of self-efficacy in other areas. Where do you have efficacy? Mm, mm -hmm. Where do you get your coffee? Why sure. do you choose that place over another place? How about your friends? How's it going there? You know, How do you choose to actually not get into a stupid argument yet again with some friend who's trolling you? You know, How do you, how do you make choices there? Okay, what does that feel like to be a, a cue ball, not an eight ball, a mm, hammer, not an mm -hmm. a nail? What does that feel like? Great. And then can you do one thing different? I think there's even a book with that title, Do One Thing Different or Differently, I think. But anyway, doesn't make as good a title. So <laughs> there you are. It doesn't sound as good. I don't know. Okay. And then you gradually start to realize, okay, what's your path from here? And, oh, I could give you a list for that, cue soundtrack. But one of the weird things is to encourage people to take a longer view. Mm. All right, here you are. You're 28. I see one of your books, I think is 4,000 Weeks. As my good friend Tom said to me once, as you know, do you plan on being 40? Mm. Do you plan on being 35? Do you plan on being 30 as a 28-year-old? How do you want it to be? And then you work backwards from that and you have people realize, okay, it's a slog, but I need to start taking some steps now. You know, I want to find ways to make more money. I want to find ways to fulfill more of my talents. I want to find ways to be, frankly, more credible, bluntly, mm. as a life partner to another person who's looking at other candidates, as we all do. So what are the things I can do to improve my situation a little every day? And then get on the ball. One of the things <laughs> that's happened for me as a longtime therapist, on the one hand, I've become a lot more compassionate, including with people that originally I had a hard time with, who just would not be the dog that would pick itself up. But I've come to realize that many people, they're just, it's hard for them to change. Or they're afraid to change. And or they just don't want to. And rather than taking it personally or getting mad at them, you know, I've learned to be more compassionate about it on the one hand. On the other hand, this is a light bulb that wants to change. I'm kind of like giddy up. Every day matters, you know. And there's a Zen saying something on the order of life is fleeting. The next moment is uncertain. This is a profound opportunity get going mm -hmm. so there's that part too okay i'll just be quiet with that yeah i'm i'm wondering about specifically focusing on the efficacy part of this okay. again just yeah. quickly toward the end yeah the person who is in the office yep. you're saying the list they're nodding along with it but you almost you almost can feel like kind of like like they're being almost beaten down by the list, if that makes right, sense. Right, right, right. So here's the question for you. You know what I mean? Okay, now yeah. you're the therapist. All oh, right. well, here we God go. forbid. All, All right, right, here we go. And what you see objectively sitting mm -hmm. across from you is lack of effort. Wow. And how do you handle it? How do you communicate that fact yes. in a way that's helpful yes. without sounding like yet yeah, another yeah, yeah. nagging, yeah. Mm -hmm. bossy, punishing, critical person? But what you're really seeing is that there are things the person could do. This yeah. is often what happens. Oh, for sure. person for says, sure. you know, I want, a better, I, I, want a, oh, yeah. I want a better life. Okay. And then you have a discussion mm -hmm. like, well, you could do X, Y, Z. And they go, yeah, I really could do X, Y, Z. And you're like, yeah. And they're like, okay. They come back next week. How to go with X or Y or Z? You know, just one would be cool. And like, uh, you know, nothing. And you run through that cycle three, four, five weeks and they're paying you too. So you feel responsible for their money. You want to deliver value. This is a very interesting and under-discussed clinical moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and issue. how you handle it. And how you handle it. Yeah. You bet. Because yeah. you could be the most gymnastics, 
brilliant pyrotechnic amalgam of Virginia Satir and Richard Schwartz and Carl Jung and Karen Horney and all the rest, whoever. Yeah. That person just is unwilling to make efforts. Mm, light bulb doesn't want what to What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a therapist. Yeah. I'm certainly none of those people. So, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I, this is all just me musing, I guess, yeah. over here. But I think that what it comes back to is like, what can you do maybe as a clinician yeah. to reinforce in them the examples that you were talking about of the yeah. times where they really did do a thing? Yeah. Where they expressed agency in some relatively yeah. small way in their life. And they go, okay, yeah. if you can express agency in that way, can you express agency in these other ways? The whole like make your bed thing, I think is like a little blown out of proportion to be frank yeah, yeah. and has been misused in a variety yeah. of different ways. But just the principle of like moving one little pebble yeah. in order to eventually shift a boulder, I yeah. think is a good principle. Yeah. And so I, I would wonder about that as a clinician, if yeah. it would, would be possible to reinforce in this person a feeling of, some kind of effort. And I also think some people are slow movers. It just yeah. takes a while. Yeah. Where where you know you get one pebble, one pebble, one pebble, one pebble, and finally and through a somewhat mysterious process that yeah. I don't think we totally understand yet. Maybe in part because we don't really totally understand why therapy works. Yep. We know that it does work, yeah. but we don't really know why it yeah, works. Yeah. It's sort of mysterious in that way. They just have the moment. They yeah. have the moment where they get on indeed or craigslist and they yeah. actually apply to the 20 jobs and it just happens yeah one day and you and you the clinician yeah. are like why now and they're like well i just Huge. did exactly you know it's I mean? the mystery yeah right uh, or around wanting to change mm -hmm. like people want to want to change yeah but they actually don't want to so yeah. what do you do and i had to really learn mm. it wasn't my job to make them do anything it wasn't my job to make them make an effort and then I started to shift into a peacefulness myself about what was beyond my control, mm. which then opened up more space for some key clients to actually, gee, what a surprise, you know, actually start making efforts yeah. or, or yeah. Yeah. you know, implementing a genuine wanting. You, kinda, you, you lighten I, up on the reins of the I horse a little bit. I changed the dynamic. Yeah, I totally. shifted the script mm. in which they were the uh, lovable, uh, low For the 10,000th time in person. their experience. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I was the person bearing witness kind of critically. So I stepped out of that. That changed the script. That was part of it. And also really exploring the mystery of effort and the mystery of wanting. And I know we're going to do an episode on motivation. And exploring things like physiological interventions. Totally. Addressing yeah. it's hard to all make efforts different when interplays you're tired I was talking all the about time. at the beginning. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I think people now more and more psychedelic-assisted therapies are getting breakthroughs. They're restabilizing in new ways. That sort of, I started reflecting more on lack of reward process in the brain. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, people who are dopamine depleters. I was gonna say something that's dopamine. Yeah, yeah. Dis disruptions of natural opioid production mm. and, and experiences there. So they weren't getting reward for making effort. So psh, of course they would peter out over time. Yeah. You know, more and more about that. And then it's so interesting. You look at people who survive crazy situations, you know, hard situations. Those who have a kind of central spark or core of determination, they tend to make it. Some other people make it who may lack that core spark. They make it for other reasons, but that core moxie, feistiness, fed-upness, mm -hmm. mm, oomphness, it is a wonderful vitamin <laughs> you know, inside their innermost yeah, being. Yeah. And it's, again, that too is not something that's really talked about, yeah. about in therapy, how to, how to identify it and how to, how to call upon it. We tend to under-recognize it. We know it when we feel it mm -hmm. in a person. Mm -hmm. You know, you want them on your team. Yeah. Because they are not going to give up. Yeah. I, I wonder how much of that has to do with different kinds of self-belief, like limiting beliefs that we have about ourselves or even self-concept. I'm just thinking about myself when I was in one of those circumstances similar to the one that I was kind of giving in the example. You know, I'm in yeah. my mid-late 20s. I'm living at home. I'm kind of yeah. restless, sort of figuring out what the heck I want to do yeah. with my life. You were there for it. Yeah. Um, you know, somewhere in there, my self-concept changed. Yeah. And my self-concept changing really catalyzed, yeah. I think, a lot of change broadly for me. How I, I stopped yeah. thinking of myself as the kind of person who just 
was listlessly moving through life in this particular kind of way. And a lot of it changed when my self-criticism calmed down and when I, I stopped using self-criticism as a defense. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And that was a big one for me. I, I went to bed almost every night beating myself up and I mm. kind of stopped doing that somewhere in there. Maybe I became more committed to my own well-being. Maybe that was part of it and I didn't yeah. want to beat myself up in that way. Yeah. And and that was a big inflection point for me. So I wonder about yeah. that in, in people's adventures here yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, Kristen Neff is, is on this with her book, Fierce. Yeah. Fierce compassion, fierce self-compassion. And I, I don't want to overvalue it because, again, too, I think there's probably something of a genderizing of this quality, of, yeah. of a kind of intensity of persistence. Anyway, I know we're coming to an end. We've wandered a bit. Hopefully this was helpful to people. Yeah, I, I think that it's it's a tough thing to talk about in a really focused way because it's such a big concept and it touches on so many other things in ways large and small. Yeah. But Today, we mostly focused on how to improve self-efficacy and develop a growth mindset over time. And along the way, we uh, referenced a lot of studies and examples and other Howard ideas. Stern. Howard Stern, the the soundtrack that's going to play beneath uh, Rick's 3x3 <laughs> matrices and lists and related concepts. But yeah, I just had a great time with this one. And I think that there was something yeah. also that was nice about doing it in person. I had a great time talking with Rick about what we can do to develop more self-efficacy and fight against feelings of learned helplessness and just a general sense of stuckness in our lives. And that's where we started. Why are we prone to feeling stuck or like we don't have influence? And there are a couple of different reasons for this. The first is our negativity bias. Negativity simply has more salience than positivity. That's the way our brain is built. There is a ton of research that suggests that people tend to attend to, pay attention to, and generally remember negative emotions way more than they remember positive emotions. Or as Rick likes to say, our brain is like a Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. Another reason is our homeostasis. Uh, the natural condition of systems is to resist change. Changing is hard, and when situations fail to change, it's easy for us to just stop trying to change them. And this gets to all of the research on learned helplessness. In experiments with dogs, they quickly stopped trying to escape painful circumstances when they were unable to influence their circumstances even just a few times. And it took many more experiences of positive agency to unlearn that helplessness. We then talked about how we can develop self-efficacy and alongside it, a growth mindset. And a growth mindset is just really the belief that we can learn, that we can grow and change over time in positive ways. And one of the ways that we can reinforce a growth mindset is by focusing on effort over talent and moving toward a general effort orientation. And this then got us into some conversations on the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And then even maybe broader than that, how for many people, school is a place where they mostly experience defeat. And if school is your primary learning environment and you typically experience defeat there, well, you're not necessarily going to have a really positive orientation toward learning. And Rick then offered a list of things that people can do to improve self-advocacy over time. First, he talked about accepting what we don't have control over. And connected to that, Tell the truth about the experiences that you've had of a lack of agency, particularly in the past. And this gets to a lot of the material that we talk about on the podcast frequently related to developing a coherent narrative of childhood. Third, we can mobilize self-compassion for the parts of ourselves that lacked agency. We can bring a sense of love to the parts of us that were pushed down by the world around us. Then fourth, we can look for opportunities today in simple ways to experience agency and efficacy. Even in tiny ways, just know what it feels like inside of you to choose one food at a grocery store over another or to make the deliberate choice to get up and reheat your coffee as I've done several times today. Even just getting a sense of that feeling of mobilization can be very powerful for people if they haven't had a lot of experiences of it in life. Then fifth, critically, Take in these experiences when you have them. Life can be a thin enough soup for people as it is when we 
do have these experiences of self-efficacy, it's really important to go out of our way to notice them and deliberately take them in. And then at the end of the episode, we went through a deliberate process of looking at an example of somebody who might feel stuck and walking through what Rick would recommend they do. And to simplify this, he talked about three things, looking at the payoffs, then looking at the costs, then asking, is there a better way that I could do this? And this idea of payoffs, which might seem really counterintuitive, like what do you mean the payoffs I'm getting from feeling stuck? A big idea in psychology is the idea of secondary gains. What risks does being stuck help you avoid? Does it preserve your equilibrium? Does it mean that you don't have to get into conflict with the people around you? Does it protect you from a certain kind of dreaded experience you might have? For example, putting yourself out there in some kind of vulnerable way. Most of the time when we have a persistent pattern of behavior, it's because we're getting something from it. Even if it's not an intuitive thing, even if it's not at the forefront of our mind, even if it seems like a behavior where we're really getting nothing at all from, most of the time there is some payoff associated with it. Or at least there was initially, and now it's just become a habit. Then second, we can look at the costs. What are the consequences of this behavior for us? And those costs might be very real in your life right now. And then finally, looking at, is there a better way to get those payoffs without suffering so many of the costs? And then after we explored that model, Rick really returned over and over again to looking at where you do have a feeling of agency in your life. What does it feel like to you when you're a cue ball and not an eight ball? Again, even in very small ways, can you do one thing differently tomorrow than you did today? And just taking that very, very small step can itself be be a kind of tipping point in your life where it cascades from one small step to another small step to another small step, and then all of a sudden your life is radically different. That is really possible for people. It does happen. What gets people to that first small step is often a bit mysterious. It's really hard to pin down, but we do know that once these steps start to cascade, it can create a ton of positive change. So I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. If you liked seeing us in the same room here in person, maybe if you were watching the video, or if you just enjoyed the vibe of the conversation when we were sitting in the same room together, it would actually be great to know that because it takes some more effort to do that. But if people like it, then we'll do more of it in the future. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a while and you somehow haven't subscribed to it yet, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to it right now on, or hey, subscribe to my channel if you're watching on YouTube. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.